0: Hello friends, James Corbett here, CorbettReport.com. I would hope by this point you have had a chance to watch The World War One Conspiracy, the almost two-hour documentary that I released in three parts over the past few weeks at CorbettReport.com. If not, what are you doing? Please go to CorbettReport.com slash WWI to watch the full three parts, listen to the full three parts, and or read the full three parts. As always, all of the different formats are available there for free download and for spreading to the four winds as i hope you will do and i'm sure i'll have to explain this many times in the coming months but uh to clear up any confusion yes the world war one conspiracy documentary is now concluded that is the documentary but it ends with it to be continued because it is part of a larger project and you can probably guess where this is going but anyway enough said on that front it will be several months, though, before this project uh, is continued, so hold on for that. But in the meantime, the World War I conspiracy documentary is concluded, but as you can imagine, of course, this isn't everything there is to say about the topic of World War One. Of course, there, I could have done, I, I could have done a hundred different documentaries based on each individual little point. I condensed entire books into paragraphs in this documentary. It's, incredible the amount of information that's out there so i've only scratched the surface so you can bet your bottom dollar that in the coming weeks and months i will be doing follow-up work to this documentary fleshing out and expanding on a lot of the different details here and as the first step towards that today i am uh, putting out there the full uh interview that i recorded with richard grove for this documentary obviously you saw the various clips of uh, richard speaking in the documentary but here is the full Uh, conversation that I recorded with him back in October, and uh, uh, it's a very... uh, There's lots of different uh, moving parts in this, so again, I'm sure this will relate to some of the things that were in the documentary. There's other things that that weren't addressed in the documentary, so I'm sure you'll be able to get something out of this. And, uh, (laughs) it's nearly unedited, but interestingly enough, there was a cricket in Rich's studio that kind of interrupted us a couple of times, so I've edited that out, but... Other than that, this is the full conversation. And as I say, there will be more coming forth from the Corbett Report in the coming weeks and months fleshing out and expanding on the World War I conspiracy because as I hope you get the sense from watching the documentary, yes, World War I was a foundational event for the world that we are living in today. And I think we have to really address that and really understand more about that history. So that's what I'm here to do. I hope you're here with me. Uh, once again, the documentary would not have been possible without the support of the Corbett Report members. Thank, thank you to each and every one of you who make this work possible by subscribing, by uh, contributing. Your uh, proceeds are literally what make this website and this work possible, so thank, thank you. If you're not yet a member, please consider it CorbettReport.com members for the details. And with that, we'll get straight into it. Richard Grove on the World War I Conspiracy. Welcome, friends. James Corbett here, CorbettReport.com, 16th of October, 2018. And today we're talking once again to our good friend Richard Grove of TragedyAndHope.com. Richard, thank you very much for taking the time.
1: Good morning, James. Thank you for inviting me.
0: You're very welcome. And we are talking about a very, very big subject today. So, as always, we'll only be able to scrape the surface of this. But I know it's something that you've talked about at length uh, in your work at uh, the Peace Revolution podcast and And elsewhere at tragedyandhope.com. So I hope people will, of course, uh, reference your material directly, and uh, links to that will be in the show notes wherever and whenever this is posted. But having said that, again, we're going to be talking about a very big subject today, namely the First World War. And as we are talking in October two thousand eighteen, we're approaching the centenary of the armistice that ended uh, the First World War on eleventh of November nineteen eighteen. And World War One strikes me as one of those subjects that. Of course, we all learn about in school in some form, in some fashion, but it's largely glossed over and I think is probably largely thought of as just preparation for World War II in most history classes these days, um, at least in the high school or freshman college kind of uh, context. So uh, not a lot of people really know about World War I in depth, uh, not just in terms of the war itself, but more specifically its origins, which I think is probably... The most important question to ask, what was World War I about? How did it start? Who started it? Why? For what purpose? So those are the types of questions that we're going to be contemplating today. And there's a cast of characters that are behind the real answer to this, that again, I think most people in our current day and age know very little, if anything at all, about. They might see some of these names when they go to the supermarket and look for certain types of tea, but uh, other than that, they probably don't know who these people really are. So let's start with someone who's exceptionally important in this story, but again, is largely lost to history, or at least glossed over. And I'm talking about someone named Lord, Lord Milner, Lord Alfred Milner. Uh, who was Lord Milner? What was his kindergarten? Where did he, where was he working? What, who is this character and how does he relate to the story of World War I?
1: Well, that's an easy question to answer. It just takes a long time. Um, Lord Milner was a British journalist and then a statesman and then an administrator. Uh, He was an administrator over the Transvaal colony of South Africa. That was like the Dutch part. And then, you know, if we get into the Boer Wars, that would be the section involved. He was also the High Commissioner over South Africa, which formerly was. Uh, the British South Africa Company, which formerly before that was the Cecil Rhodes De Beers Diamond Conglomerate Cartel, taking hold down there. So it starts with a corporation, then turns into um, a colonizing enterprise, and then becomes an official part of the British Empire, that being South Africa. So Milner is involved underneath of Cecil Rhodes, and his kindergarten are uh, a bevy of lawyers and administrators, young administrators from Oxford who have learned the the secret of the British Empire is its race superiority theory. And that's promoted by Cecil Rhodes and Lord Milner and through his kindergarten or his acolytes, the people who follow uh, the last will and testament of Rhodes, which basically concluded – That they wanted America to be part of the British Empire again. And they set about uh, a a series of ways of how to get America back into the British Empire. So Milner's uh, really like the first generation into that, boots on the ground, organizing not only in South Africa and setting up what would be their prototype for a globalist world government. Because they're talking about imperial federalism. That's their strategy. And so it's like perfected. In South Africa, a history which has uh, the result of apartheid and starts with concentration camps. So it's a very poor example of freedom, which is why it was a great example of how the British Empire could go from just being an empire to absorbing America and then becoming a globalist entity.
0: So as is so common with these questions, the answer to the question, of course, raises more questions. And I realize now that we might have started too late in the story, because as you point out, <laughs> Lord Milner was an acolyte or a protege or a, uh, I guess, uh, one of the- A the, follower. Uh, yeah, a follower, an apostle of Cecil Rhodes. A cult and Cecil member. Rhodes' yeah. vision uh, for the British Empire. Well, then that obviously raises the question, who was Rhodes? What was his background and what was his vision?
1: Cecil Rhodes, also was from Britain. He was educated at Oxford, but he only went to Oxford after he went to South Africa. He had an older brother. He follows him to South Africa. The older brother was working in the diamond mines. And by the time Rhodes gets there, he's got a setup. And his brother says, I'm going to go off and dig in the gold mines. They just found gold. And so he leaves Cecil Rhodes, uh, his younger brother, who's like in his 20s, uh, with this whole diamond mining operation Rhodes then goes to Oxford, comes back down to South Africa with the help of Lord Rothschild, who had funding efforts behind De Beers and taking advantage of that situation. And um, from there, they start to use what uh, there's no other term than slave labor, which then turns in later to the apartheid policy of South Africa. But in the midst, you've got this guy, Cecil Rhodes. Now, he dies by, I think, the age of 40 or 41 in the year 1902 Um, in 1886. That's when De Beers is formulated out of – De Beers was a farmer. And after Rhodes' operation absorbed the the farmer De Beers' land for the purpose of mining diamonds, then in 1886, you have the De Beers conglomerate, which turned into a cartel, which until recently couldn't do business in America because it was a cartel. So Rhodes is the instrument through which this is created. Um, The the, the De Beers aspect, the British South Africa Company, the colony of South Africa – all these things. Uh, Rhodes is right in the middle of it, but he's not the guy pulling the strings. He's not doing the financing and he's not doing the planning. The planning came from the philosophy of this guy at Oxford called John Ruskin, who was one of Rhodes's teachers. And this guy influenced a lot of other people who uh, were influential in the British uh, state and government in their colonies at the time. And Rhodes formulated a strategy taking this philosophy and saying, look, The British Empire has the the best people and we're meant to rule over everybody else. And here's a plan of action to go about dominating the rest of the plate, the rest of the earth. And it also happened to line up with the goals of British Freemasonry. And that's a group of, you know, a part uh, of which Rhodes was a part along with um, several other of his colleagues at the time. It was uh, it was trendy to do. And that if you look back in history, a lot of the British colonies started with British Freemasonry setting up trading posts, which were really forts because they were fortified and had armaments. So you've got this perfect storm. Cecil Rhodes is in the middle of a diamond monopoly in this place where he makes the rules and Milner carries them out basically. And that leads to slavery and apartheid and during the Boer Wars, which again we could talk about in a minute, the British used the tactic of concentration camps. So these are things that later show up in later wars, not just, you know, in the 18, 1899 in, in South Africa shows up again in World War II. Rhodes also left his, his great deal of money, not having any children, not having married, dying at a young age, left it in a very well-known last will and testament of which there were several different additions, naming different benefactors, naming different executors, um, so this this was amended from his time at Oxford. So he studies under Ruskin. He gets this vision. He writes down his will. The will contains the goal. The goal is amended over a series of years and supported and used to gain support. And then by the time he dies in 1902, there's funding. There's a plan. There's an agenda. There's working groups. And it all launches and then takes hold. And then not too long later, you've got World War One. And then from that, you've got World War II, and then you've got a century of control and, and slavery that, it, that really could have been prevented, a lot of unnecessary deaths that could have been prevented. But people of the, the time were being propagandized by their newspapers. Um, we can go into that later, but does, does that answer your question?
0: It does. But can you formulate in one or two sentences? So what was Cecil Rhodes' vision? What was his goal? In the book,
1: there's a book, The Last Will and Testament of Cecil Rhodes with the lucidory lucidory notes um, from the executor, of the testator. That's the title. So in 1902, Cecil Rhodes dies. There's a book published. It contains his last will and testament. The guy who wrote the book, William T. Steed, was in charge of a British publication called The Review of the Reviews. He was part of Rhodes' roundtable group. He at one time was an executor for the will. And in that will, it says that he uh, laments the loss of America from the British Empire and that they should formulate a secret society with the specific aim of bringing America back into the empire. He talks about this a few different times throughout the will. And then he names all the countries that they need to <clears throat> make, in par- like, then he names all the countries that they need to include in this list to have world domination, to have an English speaking union, to have British race as the enforced culture on all countries around the world and that the british were basically meant to subjugate all these other peoples and a lot of those people live in third world countries so he wasn't you know he wanted to take over the entirety of africa he he designed a railroad to go from the north to the south from the cape all the way to the tip and their vision at that time was if they hadn't lost america they would have already had a monopoly on the world but america and its freedom and its policies of you know, stay at home, don't get into foreign interventions, had to be broken, and it wasn't broken until around 1898 with the uh, Spanish-American War, where we start to adopt the techniques and the tactics of our former enemy, the British Empire, we, you know, that we fought against in 1776.
0: So, uh, one thing that comes out, leaps out from this description, is that Africa, specifically South Africa, where Rhodes um, was located and where he made his uh, diamond fortune, um, what is a central part of the beginnings of this story, uh, in some sense. And this is where Milner's kindergarten really got underway and they, they cut their teeth. Uh, and that obviously leads into the pre-World War, big war from the British perspective, the Boer War. Uh, what what was the Boer War? How does that play into this picture of this furthering of this vision of the British Empire and then ultimately on towards World War One?
1: Well, the stories and current events today are that white farmers are being killed by people in the Dutch area of South Africa and the, the area that used to be the, you know what was called the Transvaal or the Orange Territories back in the late 1800s. So once upon a time, Dutch farmers came to that part of South Africa, not talking about the country, I'm talking about the location on the continent, Southern Africa, and they cleared land and they started farms. And then at some point later in the 1800s, the British come along, they set up their colony in South Africa, they sell the Cape Colony, and they want to take that land that the Dutch settlers had worked so hard. They said, hey, there's diamonds over there, we can go get gold. So they run this thing called the Jameson Raid. So the Jameson Raid is an excellent example of the conducting of military campaigns using British Empire uh, personnel, armaments, etc., but not authorized by the king at the time. So Cecil Rhodes is running his own black ops down there, running a war, and there's other people involved. There's a guy, Jameson, who led the raid, and Lord Milner's around. And so this is uh, around 1899. This is uh, the second Boer War. So what you have is the creation of these concentration camps where they took captured Dutch farmers and put them in there. And this is the trend that later goes to Britain's ally Hitler and is used in World War II. But that's a that's a story for another time. So the British in South Africa, 1899, have set up these concentration camps, and they're conducting warfare against the, the Dutch. Now, behind the scenes in this, you have the Dutch East India Company and the British East India Company. And the British East India Company has a monopoly on opium at the time and had been competing against the Dutch East India Company for a long time. So there's also like the the corporate undertones to the political situations even back then.
0: There's corporate undertones, there's political machinations, there's also propaganda, as I think you gestured yep. towards there, that was essential in getting the British public on board with this. Why, why on earth are we fighting this war, you know, out in southern Africa? What, what does this have to do with us? There was a lot of propaganda at the time about what was happening in the Transvaal and why it was important for British interests. Uh, and I think all of this...
1: And if I'm not ahead. mistaken, it was around that time that a guy named William T. Steed who again i mentioned as the the, uh, the editor of the last will and testament of cecil Rhodes. william t steed conducts the first interview and it's with a guy named general gordon now, i'm thinking this is 1885 so they probably weren't talking about um, they probably weren't talking about the boer wars but they probably were talking about that the colony that they had india and subjugating people over there so that's an interesting factoid the first printed interview like propaganda because they used it as propaganda Here's a guy from the establishment. He's going to enter, give you a favorable set of questions, softball questions, and that's like known as the first printed interview. There's also a Central Park Memorial to William T. Steed, and people should ask why. It's a very interesting guy to have a Central Park Memorial in New York City.
0: John John Lennon, William Steed, you know, why not? <laughs> a lot of English people are represented in Central Park. Uh, all right. Uh, let's uh, – so – I think this is by way of of introducing the idea of the machinations that went into the preparation for World War I, which are sort of similar but on a much, much grander scale, obviously, as to what what was happening with the Second Boer War. And so let's move this timeline up several years and we start seeing the political machinations and the diplomatic machinations that are going on to really start to steer uh, Europe, the continent, towards war in the favor of the british. Um talk about that ma- manipulation, those machinations and the people from Milner's kindergarten influenced by Cecil Rhodes' vision who were behind that.
1: I'm going to start with the end and go back to the beginning. The end of it is the british and american people were brought together and worked, you know, against germany. The american population at that time had a lot of german people in it. 30 to 50% of the population had relations back to germany. So there had to be this very clever propaganda campaign. It's known today as Babies on Bayonets. So if you have no interest in World War One, but you think it's interesting to study propaganda so you don't get fooled again, then type into your favorite search engine, Babies on Bayonets, World War One." You'll see hundreds of different posters where the Germans are bayoneting babies, and it brings about emotions, and it doesn't give you the details of anything, and emotions drive wars, not facts. Facts are left out and deleted all the time in order to create wars. So I think that putting facts back in might help prevent wars. But I do know that they like to drive people on emotion. The babies on bayonets, getting America into World War I, that's a key part of it. And I wanted to just drop that while I was thinking about it because you had mentioned the propaganda that they used during the Boer War to get that going on and get British support. Going back to the beginning of the question – this starts really with the death of Rhodes in 1902. There's two key aspects right when he dies that go into motion. First is the Rhodes scholarships. Rhodes scholarships are given out by Oxford to some of their allied countries, their favorite countries. One of their favorite countries in the early 1900s right after Rhodes dies and these wills go into a, the will goes into effect and they have the Rhodes scholars was Germany. So at the time of World War I and World War II, it's very interesting to identify who in the German government, who in the German military were also Rhodes scholars. It's a very interesting line of study. But to keep it focused, the other thing that happened in 1902, it was the creation of the Pilgrim Society. Now, the Pilgrim Society was an Anglophile society, meaning these people had a loyalty and a love for Britain. And you might think, well, none of those people were in America because we're about America and we're free. No, there were a lot of families that were making money from the opium trade in America and when we, not we, when America uh, defeated the British both times in the Revolution and the War of 1812, there were still many families in America, famous families like FDR's family, the Delano's, they were in the opium trade, the Russell and Company that funded the Skull and Bones and Yale and these types of things. There's a lot of undercurrent of opium in the political history that's left out. The Pilgrim Society are people in America and in Britain having uh, a unified agenda in two different spots. Like if if they set up another Washington, D.C. someplace over in Britain, it would be like that. It's like two capital cities and these people are the elite rulers who have this big picture idea that are steering world events. So the Pilgrim Society is a who's who, and you can see like Mark Twain speaking there. Now, when Mark Twain spoke at the Pilgrim Society, I don't think he really understood what context he was there. He just thought it'd be cool to go to Oxford and, and you know talk to these people and get his honorary degree from Oxford and go to Pilgrim Society meetings. But then I also read some quotes about uh, what Mark Twain thought about Cecil Rhodes, and I think he said, uh, you know, when his time comes, I'll, I'll, loan, I'll loan them the rope to hang him. That was the gist of the quote. So Rhodes leaves this money, Secret Society inspires, uh, you know, that's the Rhodes Scholarships and the Roundtable. And then the other aspect is the Pilgrim Society moving up just a few years. Now these people in these groups, Pilgrim Society especially, they're having, you know, things to say about the the Russo-Japanese War in 1906. And they're shaping political policy all the way up to the, the beginning of World War I. So World War One, we're taught it's Franz Ferdinand getting assassinated and you know, th- things triggering from there. But really, when you read the continuity, the ominous continuity of the history of the people involved in the statesmen and the administrators, there's a much bigger story and a lesson to be learned and that it's not being taught really anywhere except here.
0: One of the incredibly important parts of this story, of course, as with any war, is who's funding it and where is the financing coming from? And unfortunately, as with so many others, it goes back to uh, the Rothschilds, who you did mention in terms of funding Rhodes uh, in southern Africa as he was consolidating the diamond uh, business over there. uh, And they
1: were also involved in the Rhodes scholarships. There's also continuity there. And there's a strong Oxford influence. So it's not just Rothschild. There's like the British Empire notion of of, of being that comes from Oxford, which is like a thousand years old. And then you have financial allies like the Rothschilds. And then you have the political allies, like the people that's the nobility. They still have nobility in a King and Queen. Well, not a King right now, but they still have a monarchy over there is what I'm saying. So there's, it's a, it's a complex picture with nuance, but it's a finite planet. And there was only so many people participating at that level. And most of the important parts are hidden
0: as always. Um, So let's start to uncover it. Uh, I know you've done a lot of extensive research on the Rothschilds for your upcoming book. Tell us specifically who in the Rothschild family, I'm assuming in the English branch, were connected, most intimately connected to this group revolving around Milner.
1: Well, I'm going to bookend it. And it's this guy named Lord Rothschild. Now, you just can't say Lord Rothschild, because there's a lot of Rothschilds, and there's a lot of them that have nobility, titles of nobility, Uh, first, second, and third generations, fourth, fifth generations. So this was Lord, he's known as Lord Walter Rothschild, and professionally, he's a zoologist. He inherits a lot of wealth in a a very uh, high-status family. He pursues uh, his art and uh, his science and his scientific theories and research, and he has... uh, like crypto, like not not cryptozoology, but he has uh, zoo zoological museums, and he's collecting specimens. And uh, he's famously the the Rothschild that's riding the the giant tortoise, and leading him around with a piece of lettuce on his stick. And there's a piece of lettuce hanging out of the tortoise's mouth. And I've always used that. Here's the metaphor for the bankers: like they're leading people around with stimulus response. This turtle, this tortoise, can't ask questions. It can't question its obedience. So that's Lord Walter Rothschild. Why is he important? Well, he and his family are some of the early financiers and backers of Cecil Rhodes and promoters of his last will and testament. And in the question of America being brought back into the British Empire, there are newspaper articles. There's one in 1902 where Lord Rothschild is saying, you know, this would be a good thing to have America back in the British Empire. He's also the Lord Rothschild to whom the Balfour Declaration is addressed. And the Balfour Declaration is a piece of paper in 1917 from the British government stating that the land of Palestine can go to the Zionists, and it's addressed to Lord Rothschild. The issue is, when you look into the origins of the Balfour Declaration, it starts with a note, like a list of things that he wants, Lord Rothschild, and then it goes to Milner Alpha Balfour and then goes back to Lord Rothschild. So there's this political, financial nuance that overlays from the 1880s all the way through the beginning of World War I, actually almost to the end of World War I. And that's a serious part of the story that is always consistently, consistently left out in any type of um, higher learning.
0: All right. Well, you raised the Balfour Declaration, um, the specter of the Balfour Declaration, which becomes an important part of the World War I story and more specifically the post-World War I story. Um, talking about Paris 1919. Uh, mm. But for people who don't have any clue about this, what was the Balfour Declaration? So in
1: 1917, there's an agreement, uh, a letter of agreement sent from the British government, from Al- uh, Arthur Balfour, who's uh, I believe he's the foreign secretary. It's sent from Arthur Balfour to Lord Rothschild. Now, Lord Rothschild and Arthur Balfour, they know each other. They have a long history together. And there's a lot of Fabian socialists in this whole story of what led up to World War One. Specifically, with Balfour, he's acting as an agent of the British government saying, we're going to give away this land that's not really ours, and we're going to give it to you guys and your group. The problem is the British had also promised that same land to the Arabs. So now the Balfour Declaration is going against some of the foreign policy plans that they've already promised to these other countries. The other interesting thing about the Balfour Declaration is it just had its 100th anniversary. So they, last year, had a site that had the whole history of the Balfour Declaration. You could see the originals from Lord Rothschild and going to Lord Milner for changes and coming through Arthur Balfour. And then being sent back as an official letter from the from the, from the monarchy, basically. So that's interesting. But there's also interviews where the current Lord Rothschild, Lord Jacob Rothschild, uh, comments on his ancestors' history and how they brought about uh, the Jewish state in 1947-48 because of the Balfour Declaration. So there's a lot of history to unpack there. But most people, again. Um, they're not aware of the document, let alone the very interesting history behind it, let alone what that really means in the bigger story. And in the bigger story, you've got a guy that has you know, been working, and this is Lord Milner, who's involved in the process. And he's the like uh, executive manager of getting Cecil Rhodes' plan to get America back into the British Empire out there. And then you've got the financing end of it and the, the, the social connection contact people – um, chiming in and saying yes, would like this like this to be done, and they also cut a deal with the British government to get Palestine. So there's a lot of things that go on right before America ends up getting into the war, and it's these are these are parts that are left out. Most people just see first off there's two Balfour declarations. Balfour also made a declaration in 1927, and it's not related to Palestine. But there's also just so you know, there's two two versions out there, two different documents. The 1917 document, the Balfour Declaration is an essential and primary document to learn anything about the history of the state of Israel, because that's, that's where, because until then Palestine was under British mandate. And I think British mandate over Palestine, I think it started September 11th, 1921 or 1922 as a function of the Versailles treaty. And I know this probably isn't the answer to the the question, but The the Versailles Treaty basically reorganized and redrew the map of the world according to the people who had planned out the war in the first place. So the Balfour Declaration is part of that story as well, the redrawing of a bunch of other people's territories without their will or consent. But I'll leave it there.
0: it's an exceptionally interesting and important part of this story and as you say uh, a lot of it is glossed over and most people have probably never even heard of the Balfour Declaration so it is important to get that history in but let's move this conversation now across the Atlantic towards the United States who obviously did take part in World War One, but not until 1917 so th- from the American perspective They're watching this great war going on in Europe for three years, millions of people slaughtered in this bloody, mindless trench warfare, and they're watching this, and then suddenly in 1917, the United States, which up to this point had largely thought of itself as an isolationist type of nation, free trade with all but no entangling alliances, all of that rhetoric that we've heard from the founding of the country up until that point, suddenly decides to get involved in this war or maybe not so suddenly. Um, What were the machinations going on to get the United States involved in this conflict and who was behind those machinations?
1: Well, the first part is getting the American public to accept that Germany might be an enemy. And the first step in that process would be propaganda to dehumanize people in Germany. That way anyone from German extraction in America would see those people as separate from them. Because they're doing different stuff now than when their family lived there. And that's not acceptable. So their first was turning up the temperature on the American public with some propaganda. Now, behind the scenes, you've got Woodrow Wilson and Colonel House on the American side. And then you've got the whole Anglo-American establishment on the other side over in London cooking up things behind the scenes. There's a lot of letters and strategies that go back and forth, and America just doesn't get into the war because of the Zimmerman Telegram or the Lusitania, although those are definitely steps toward the war. And when you look at these steps toward the war, there's a lot of nasty fingerprints on these, like things that could have been avoided, but were let you know let happen in order to bring about the reaction, like uh, you know problem reaction solution type of thinking, and it was made sellable by Wilson to the public. And once they got that combination, right. Then America gets into the world war one on the side of the British on the side of the allies. And, um, then it, you know, it ends and the armistice is highly unbalanced. It's a, it's a power play. And I would argue that if you look at the Versailles treaty, as it ended up with the people in power and the people that are punished, I would argue that that's the game plan from the beginning, that not a whole lot changed. They got exactly what they wanted. They orchestrated everything. They controlled the press. There's a great quote by – he's a congressman from Montana. His name was Oscar Calloway. It was 1917, and he lists how – all the major publications are bought up by these globalist interests—the sh- the shipbuilding interests, the iron interests. You know, he wasn't saying globalism, but when you look at what globalism is, it's people who are adhering to an idea that doesn't include freedom, it doesn't include local accountability, and it does include them dominating people to their to their will all over the place, regardless of morality or ethics. So. Oscar Calloway in 1917 is pointing to the fact and if, if the Americans aren't getting the real information, they could be highly influenced to take steps that would lead to a century of, well, war.
0: So you talk about, obviously, it was President Woodrow Wilson at the time that the uh, United States became embroiled in the First World War, and it was Wilson's vision that led to the creation of the League of Nations after the war. But who really was Wilson? How did he actually get into office? And was he really the driver of his own administration?
1: Woodrow Wilson was an obscure professor at Princeton University who, from reading all that I've read about him, wasn't the smartest guy. But he was smart enough to pick up when other people had good ideas. And then he bumps into this guy named Colonel House. Now, Colonel House. He grew up in uh, Beaumont, Texas and Colonel House's dad was like a, a Rhett Butler type of smuggler privateer pirate during the Confederate war with the union. Um, so, so Colonel House, first off, he's not a Colonel. It's just like a, a title he gave himself to make him seem more than he was, but he did come from a politically connected family in the South that were doing business with the British during the civil war. So Colonel House in the early 1900s makes Woodrow Wilson his protege. And Colonel House himself is being puppeted by a few people in the layers of the Anglo-American establishment above him. And so we are left with the public persona of Woodrow Wilson and here he is and he's got this, uh, this whole new Federal Reserve system that's gonna come in during his administration, which was also kind of a precursor to getting America into the war. Um, because it changed our financial dependency from being self-reliant and printing our own debt-free money to being indentured to international bankers uh, who charge us as they print money out of thin air and charge future generations for it. So Colonel House, Woodrow Wilson, they're like the American brain trust side, lower level. And they have people above them both in America and in London that are puppeteering the entire political structure Um because sm- that's what smarter people do who have no ethics or morals. They're smart people, for sure.
0: Well, you mentioned you mentioned a couple of the uh, incidents that lead towards the start of World War I from the American perspective, uh, namely the Lusitania and the Zimmerman Telegram. The Lusitania, I'm sure that most people are at least broadly familiar with that incident. The Zimmerman Telegram, maybe not so much. It's not one that I at least remember learning from my month or two or whatever we spent uh, on world war one back in my high school history class but uh let's talk a little bit about those incidents and what they tell us at least about the the preparation uh, of the american public for this war
1: to answer that question i'm going to start with in america we have this thing called the nsa and the nsa national security agency comes as a function after the national security act in 1947. that's 1947. now go back to 1901 the British set up something called Government Communications Headquarters, GCHQ. GCHQ is a formalized version. They say it starts during World War I, but when you trace it back, it goes back to like 1901. And prior to that, this is the same group of people that were hosting the transatlantic cable from 1850 to 1911 and then tapping all those communications. So these are master spies with the penultimate... Ability to hack into radio transmissions, you know, telegraph transmissions, the transatlantic cable. So the British were sitting pretty because all these other countries had to use these diplomatic channels to communicate. So GCHQ is involved in both um, room 40. So room 40 is a is a code breaking and, and decryption unit. So they're supposed to decrypt but not interpret data for the British Empire, and it's in the naval admiralty building. So you've got these two entities, GCHQ and Room 40, and Room 40 is a code-breaking room. So it's in Room 40 that they're able to get the Zimmerman telegram, and they're able to have the Lusitania run into some German submarines by accident, even though they plotted the course and I've read the actual documents, because these are all in archives. They're very proud of all this stuff. And they should be, but we should also learn from that. We should also learn from this, because it led to millions and millions and millions of unne- unnecessary deaths. So, the Zimmerman Telegram. It's a, a telegram from uh, the German Secretary of State Arthur Zimmerman to ends to the mexican ambassador from germany so it's a german ambassador in mexico and his name is heinrich von eckhart so the zimmerman telegram is a diplomatic cable sent from arthur Zimmermann to heinrich von eckhart in, from germany to mexico how does a message get from germany to mexico well at that time because america was an isolationist country and we were a neutral country at that point we weren't funding or arming either side, had offered, uh, Wilson offered to let our diplomatic channels, our being an American diplomatic channels, to be used by the Germans and the Mexicans uh, during this time. Now, most messages were sent in the clear, meaning that the Americans could read them as they passed the message along. Zimmerman gives the American diplomat, the American ambassador, a coded message, and the Americans. Don't try to break it. They just pass it along to Mexico to Heinrich von Eckhart. And the British decrypt it and they see it. And they're like, oh, uh, what it says is if America declares war on Germany, that Mexico would side with Germany. And in return, Germany would give it funding, training, and give it Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona as part of the deal. Then British intelligence leaked this memo. And they didn't really leak it without American permission because Colonel House and Woodrow Wilson knew all about it. But they leaked it to the public at an appropriate time to build up animosity and emotions against the Germans. And so it was one of the key psychological warfare aspects. Now, some people have said the Zimmerman telegram never existed. And I would point out that Arthur Zimmern, I think on March 28th of that year, uh, in the Reichstag, admitted that it was a real message, that they were really making an offer to Mexico. And it was only if America declared war on Germany.
0: If World War I was not the random uh, result of some political assassination, but was in fact the end result of a period of careful calculations of over many years by very rich and powerful people working in a concerted effort to bring this about, why? Why were they so desperate for this war? What did it accomplish for them and their aims?
1: What World War I allowed these globalists, these Anglophiles, these people who wanted the English-speaking union to reign over the whole world, what it allowed them to do was militarize American thinking. And what I mean by that is there was a, a whistleblower called Norman Dodd. He was the head researcher for the Reese Committee that looked into how nonprofit foundations were influencing American education away from freedom. And what they found was the Carnegie Institute for International Peace was seeking to understand how to make America a wartime economy, how to take over the, the state and diplomatic uh, stratus, uh, how to take the, the state apparatus over, how to change med- the education to get people to continually consume, how to have arms production ramp up. And then once this happened in World War One, if you look at what happened in the 1920s, You've got people like Major General Smedley Butler who is using the U.S. military to advance corporate interests in Central and South America and doing some very caustic things to the indigenous people insofar as these were not American policies really before the Spanish-American War in 1898, meaning that going and taking foreign military action was not part of the diplomatic strategy of America prior to our engagement with the British Empire in the late 1800s and as it ramped up after Cecil Rhodes' death. So what these people gained was the foothold for world government from which they could get through globalism what they called a new world order. So the League of Nations wasn't set up to be a permanent entity. It was the stepping stone so they could create the United Nations. And in between there, they would need another world war to bring all this together. But they had an idea to dominate the earth, They had funding. They carried it out with stealth, covert apparatus, and communications. And they treated America as an ally, even though America was clearly an enemy to be used, to be subjugated, to be brought back into what they called the British Commonwealth, as they rebranded, and to be used as a spearhead on globalism. So when people were like, oh, America has been at war for the last 60 years, and America has invaded and overthrown all these regimes and messed in elections, that really wasn't part of American policy until we got into the special relationship with Great Britain. And at that time, Great Britain's playing this game called The Great Game with its cousins in Germany, in Russia. And they're all trying to to bring about world domination, but the British had a, a worldwide monopoly on opium. They had the funding. They had the financial help. And they came out dominant, and that's a function also of World War I, that all those other monarchies fall, and they're replaced with uh, you know, state federal governments, which is part of
0: world federalism. So the globalist philosophy.: So I know you've addressed this more or less, but let's let's tease it out a little bit more. Specifically, what was the significance of the founding of the Federal Reserve? And the institution of the income tax um, the year before the World War, World War One broke out and a few years before the U.S. became embroiled in that war. How did that help the aims and interests of these warmongers and war profiteers?
1: The Federal Reserve Act originally was the Aldrich Act. And because Aldrich was Eastern establishment, rich person, it was rejected by the American public. But under Woodrow Wilson, it's rebranded as the Federal Reserve Act. And that all comes about because a bunch of bankers adopted pseudonyms and rode on a train secretly down to Jekyll Island, Georgia, and made some secret plans and then came back and enacted those plans. In fact, they enacted them on Christmas Eve when nobody would be paying any attention. And out of that, you have this new Federal Reserve banking system that subjugates America to uh, unfair tariffs and taxation without representation because along with it comes the IRS. So there's a lot of machinations to kind of harness the raw materials and human resources of America through this ever, this never-ending debt creation system called the Federal Reserve. So it was instrumental in setting up the public and, and giving uh, a group of people that were in control of those finances The leverage they needed if they wanted to bargain with Britain, say through the Balfour Declaration, to get America into the war in exchange for a piece of land that didn't belong to Britain anyway. So for the players that were knowing in the deal, it was a win-win situation. Britain's given away land that they didn't own and the Zionists are going to get Palestine in exchange for bringing in not their own forces but America who was just harnessed through the Federal Reserve Act. And almost all the people that are sitting there on that train and at that meeting are directly, you know, working for, representatives of, or deeply endowed to, the Rothschild financial banking dynasty in all those various countries.
0: The Rothschilds and the Rockefellers.
1: And the Rockefellers, of course. But the Rockefellers start with oil and they get into banking. The Rothschilds start with banking and then get into oil. Through the Nobel uh, Brothers. That's right. Who created the first oil tanker the Nobel brothers.
0: And also obviously in bed with the armaments industry and
1: absolutely. uh, I think it was Alfred Nobel that created dynamite and then Ludwig Nobel died. And then the papers reported that the creator of dynamite was dead and world war one and all this stuff was horrific. And then Alfred Nobel says, I want to create something to leave a legacy and that's the Nobel peace prize. So the guy who created dynamite that led to millions of deaths being used in war, um, then creates this peace prize as a political you know, trophy. And you see who they handed out to.
0: All right, Rich, we have covered an awful lot of ground here. Um, and there's so much more, obviously, so many more details that need to be explored here. Um, but if there are any gaps in this narrative or any important characters or anything that you wanted to bring to the table, now would be the time or forever hold your peace.
1: Um, Lord Milner in his career was uh, in influential in Rio Tinto mining, which was a Rothschild mining operation set up. And like uh, Rio Tinto is from the 1870s and the Rothschilds get into it like 1883. So the fact that Milner and his, uh, his corporate board membership, as we would call it today, like he's, he's involved at a deep level. Milner is involved at such a supra governmental level that he and er- um, Edward Gray, Sir Edward Gray, and some of these other characters are often left out of the narrative, but they're really the ones who are instrumental behind World War I, behind the policies conducted on both sides. And like I said, um, it's interesting to see what Rhodes scholars were involved in the, the German Empire hierarchy during World War I as opposed to which, which ones might be on the British side. And that these guys all have commonality through going to Oxford and serving as part of the legacy of Cecil Rhodes. So there's a lot to unpack only because there's so many key characters who have been left out of the traditional narrative. And this is where people like uh, Winston Churchill cuts his teeth. Like he's involved in Operation – or in Room 40 and the Lusitania and the Zimmerman telegram, these sorts of things, right? So it's not only – in America, we're usually just taught here's the American side, Woodrow Wilson. Maybe they talk about Colonel House. But there's so many characters on the British side that are influential in getting America into World War One. That you can't understand the story without learning about those characters. And so that's why over time I've tried to encapsulate what I've learned into my history blueprint because it holds so much more data than my brain can. And it recalls it pretty quick if you search and that's what I use to – to brush up for an inter- interview like this. It's like, oh, what have I already learned about this and where are those primary resources? That would be useful right now.
0: Yeah, well, speaking of resources, now would be the time to direct people to books that you think are valuable on this subject and online resources, including, of course, your own.
1: Uh, the short list of books, Hidden History by Dougherty and McGregor, Friendly Fire, by Lynn Pickett, Clive Prince, and Stephen Pryor. That's a Friendly Fire. It's got Churchill on the front with a machine gun. And it's subtitled The, the, War, the Secret War Between the Allies. Um, other books, New World Order, if you want the comprehensive from 1800s to the 21st century view of it. Tragedy and Hope 101, if you want the summary of Tragedy and Hope, the big book, and the Anglo-American establishment. Which is also covering all the same characters we just talked about. And then the last book would be Lord Milner's Second War which is World War I, um, and then always dig into the primary resources. Get, get some roundtable papers or get some Colonel House intimate papers published by Yale and Charles Seymour in 1924. Read what these people were actually writing to each other. See who they wrote to. This is much more interesting than what you'll read about on most blogs. And it doesn't take electricity.
0: Uh, for the three people probably in the audience who have never encountered you before or your work, um, tell them about tragedyandhope.com. and com.
1: tragedy is, uh, it's a landing spot for meta learning and hyper learning. So learning about learning and using the internet and electronic resources to expedite your learning. So, uh, the theme is tragedy and hope was a 1966 textbook published by a Georgetown professor, Carol Quigley, who had access to the Council on Foreign Relations records for 20 years, and prior to that had dealt with a, a whistleblower from within the secret society of Cecil Rhodes, and that led to a whole bunch of information that really makes sense out of the world. Like, for instance, in one one page of Tragedy and Hope, he talks about how uh, the political parties, they're not the really the political parties, they're really the same. The same agenda is always going on, regardless of Republican or Democrat. Um, that the this group behind the scenes uh, works with the communists, works with the anarchists, works with the capitalists. They worked with Wall Street. They worked with FDR. They worked with Hitler. So the bigger story behind the scenes is always more interesting than what we're going to get through public schooling or mainstream media or even private schooling and private university or elite universities aren't being taught about this because it would make their students very hard to control. And you would see that you're able to make a difference in life. So tragedyandhope.com my podcast is the peace revolution podcast it's also on the website and um, my audience is filled with people who ask questions and want to find answers
0: excellent stuff well i would like to think that my audience is as well and i hope we've provided a few answers (laughs) and probably raised a lot more questions throughout the course of this conversation as is the nature of such things but i appreciate you being here to help us with this rich i uh, always look forward to our conversations and know we'll have many more in the future thank you for your time
1: Thank you, James, and thank you to anyone who watches, listens, and looks for themselves. The Corbett Report is brought to you by The Corbett Report Subscriber.
0: A weekly newsletter featuring James Corbett's International Forecaster Editorial, recommended reading and viewing, discounts on Corbett Report DVDs, and once a month, a subscriber-only video. Sign up today to start receiving your copy at corbitreport.com/support